welcome to the Agility Transformation Podcast. This is your host, Kelly Fiday, PhD. I'm an Agile coach and an executive coach. I love helping people discover the best in themselves and then making that even better. I'm an avid rock climber, whitewater rafter, a mom, and a Rotary Club member. The goal of this podcast is to explore ways to help Agile transformations be successful. Many Agile transformations start strong, then fade out. And I'm guessing none of you woke up this morning and said, today I'm looking forward to being half-assed. There are some people that actually are succeeding at this Agile game, including making it sustainable and getting huge ROI benefits. My goal is to make you one of them. This podcast is to help you avoid common pitfalls and give you ways to make your Agile transformation successful and sustainable. Who it's for is those of you interested to find ways to create lasting success at Agile and transformation. Whether you're a leader, coach, scrum master, product owner, team member, or some other role in a group that's moving towards Agile. We interview super interesting guests in areas ranging from culture or change, coaching, technical Agile, leveraging improv for transformation, and much more. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Today's episode is an interview with Julie Diamond, PhD, who is an author, executive coach, and leadership consultant. For more than 25 years, Julie's been at the forefront of creating transformational learning and leadership solutions across a range of sectors and disciplines, from grad degree programs to leader development programs. Julie's research and work with leaders is focused on problems of power, the ways that power is expressed, how it impacts culture, interpersonal dynamics, decision-making, and leadership ability. Her latest book, which I love, by the way, is called Power, A User's Guide. It dives into the problems and promises of being in a position of power. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the Agility Transformation Podcast. I'm here with my guest today, who I'm super excited to have, uh, Julie Diamond. So she is the founder of Diamond Leadership, which provides innovative leadership and talent development services like coaching, consulting, assessment, training to global clients. Um, So there's a lot of information, Julie, on your website about who you are. I'm not going to read it, but I think what I'm going to do is with that short intro, just ask you, uh, can you introduce yourself and let's kind of start there. Sure, I can introduce myself. Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Um, Yeah, I'm an executive coach and a leadership consultant, and my work has really focused a lot on leadership and the problem of power or the possibility of power in leadership roles. Um, Most recently, I've been doing a lot of work. I've developed a unique um, 360 assessment um, for leaders on power, um, the Diamond Power Index, which helps leaders identify critical opportunities and vulnerabilities related to the way they use power in the service of their roles. Um, I'm really passionate about helping people develop into being great leaders. I think leadership is an incredible opportunity. Um, people, the, the, the ability to make such a big impact and, and uh, influence so many lives and to create. Um, is immense and so um i really want people be the best they can be in a leadership role Mm -hmm. yeah so what initially drew me to your work was uh your first book because i was trying to learn about process work and that me a lot and then because i knew your name um I don't know if I was trolling around the internet or what, but I saw your second book, Power, um, and I just thought, wow, like that's such an important topic, at least in my view. So what if we start there? Like, why did you decide to write a book on power and how do you even define power? Those are two big questions. So, yeah. uh, so I'll back up a little bit. Um, you, my first book, A Path Made by Walking Process, Work and Practice. So my background is in psychology as well as education, communication, linguistics. But I spend a lot of years working really in, in the context of psychology as a, as a therapist, as a trainer, as an educator, uh, helping people learn how to um, become facilitators and psychotherapists. And so um, but originally, my academic work, before that even, was 
in um, linguistics or pragmatics, the study of discourse uh, interaction. I was fascinated by power. Sorry. No, I'm just, I'm fascinated. I didn't know that. So yeah, go please continue. Yeah, I did my doctorate in the field of sociolinguistics or discourse analysis would be the subfield where I watched and, and studied how people used language to negotiate interactions, to negotiate status and power and kind of ranking in their relationships through language. Um, and uh, I was always really interested in this gap between how people talked about power and power in play. People huh. talk about power like it's a static thing, you know, like it's this monolithic, he's got power, she's got power, the government's got power, we've got no power, they've got power. It's like super black and white and it's static. But yeah. if you watch human interaction, even children, like children are constantly like asserting power, trying to get their parents to buy things in the checkout line, you know, using all kinds of strategies. Friends are always, you know, competition at workplace. You don't need a title. You don't need a position. You don't need an institution to have and use power with each other. So that, that gap, you know, I was sort of a, I, I guess I would call myself in a, in a way a sociologist. I was always fascinated with how people sort of, negotiated this I was interested in sort of the micro level not so much the macro level and the gap between how we talked about it in terms of institutions and society versus how it lived in our daily practice with each other huh. so that was in my early work and I never lost I never lost my passion for that so even when I worked with individuals even in the therapy context the training context group work group facilitation I was always tracking these dynamics and eventually had to just scratch that itch and come back to it. And what did you notice or what did you learn about that gap? Wow, well, different things at different stages. I, I felt like, and I still feel that, it's easier to see power out there than huh. it is to see power in here. And I think that that's part and parcel of the problem of power. One of, the, one of the metaphors I use to describe power is like a ladder. It's not my metaphor. It's a common metaphor. We're on a ladder, you know, the corporate ladder yeah. or the hierarchical ladder. But if you, think about, if you think about the physiology of being on a ladder, right. you're looking up, right? So when you're on a ladder, you're always aware of the power above you. You always forget that somebody's looking at your feet or your bottom, when they're on the ladder and you always, you're the expert on studying what's above you. So I think part of power is that we are just so conditioned to think of who's got more power than we do, who's above us. And whether that's the person, our boss, or whether that's a teacher or the government huh. or, or the, uh, you know, the hegemonic structures that govern the world. Um, and so I think that's what I've learned about the gap is that, Almost by definition, power means that we study the power we don't have, or we tend to be more identified with the powers we don't have, and we're less likely to start to study the powers we do have. And so a lot of my work is helping people, what are the powers you do have and you do use, and you forget you're using or use unconsciously. Um, so. Like what's the power that you actually have, but you're not aware necessarily that yeah, absolutely. Hearing absolutely. you correctly. And I noticed, I was on your website, I think last week or the week before, and I noticed that you were running a workshop, I think in Washington, D.C. Was that right? Yes, at the end of the month, I'll be in Washington, D.C. I'm running a certification, actually. It's a training for using the 360 assessment. Um, huh. So a part of that, a, the first part of that is a open workshop and then uh, participants have the option to stay on for the certification. I see. Um, and, you know, just as I hear you, you describe um, how you see power and the, the reason you're interested in it, it, it um, you know, I keep thinking, well, I can understand why she's running these workshops to help people discover the power they already have instead of 
always just, you know, looking up at whoever, whatever has, or we perceive to have more power than us. Um, so I do. I, and a lot of my coaching work focuses on that. Um, together with uh, um, my, my colleague, Leslie Moniz, we run a women's leadership program called the Power Squared Leader Lab. Um, huh. power, power Squared refers to personal and positional power. And a huge focus of that work is to help leaders recognize the powers they do have and where they do have power and not to default to feeling powerless, which miraculously and paradoxically, no matter how much power you have, it's easy to default to the feeling of where you don't have power. It's um, so true. It, that's so true. I mean, I work with leaders at all different levels and I hear some of the most senior leaders say, I feel powerless in this situation. And I, I think the self that I was 10 years ago would have thought, well, don't you sort of magically have power because of your position? And you right. had just mentioned personal versus positional power. And that sounds like an important distinction. Um, what do you mean by those terms? So personal power, I, um, personal power is all the power that you have by virtue of you, your personality, your skills that you've developed in life, um, your, your, your characteristics, your temperament, um, what you've learned and grown, your personal development. Um, personal power has sort of like, let's say, less credibility in the world, but it's infinitely more robust. It's infinitely robust because it's the power you can take with you, right? It goes with you. Mm. Whereas your positional power, which is in your title, in your job description, in your social identity or status, that really relies on your social self. And as long as you're in that role, you have that power, but it doesn't really go with you anywhere. If you leave your position at work, you don't take that power with you. Um, personal power is what we really need to be effective in the world. Uh, um, one of the ways of find it is I say, positional power is your license to act. It gives you license. But personal power is your capacity to act. It's what gives you the capacity, the ability to actually get things done, make things happen. It's what is typically called influencing skills at work. Or, um, but it's also, it's also, you know, Hannah Arendt called it moral authority it's the mm -hmm. it's the power you have that makes people want to follow you believe in you it, it helps you also stay connected to what's important um mm -hmm. it's it's an infinite source of power um you can never you can never have it taken away from you you can only lose access to it through your own actions or inactions um so it's a matter of connecting or reconnecting to that personal power that's already there that's right. And personal power, I mean, if you look at how the world has evolved, how society has changed, you look at the greatest social uh, innovations, the greatest social activists and, um, you know, universal suffrage, human rights, civil rights, you know, governments, uh, society doesn't change from above down, it changes from below up, right? So people power, revolutions, social movements, social activists are always using personal power to affect change, to make an impact, to influence governments, to influence others. Um, so the power of person, personal power is so infinitely more powerful in the long term than positional social identity power. Now, I'm not minimizing the incredible effect of social power, systemic power, institutional power. It's real, it's there, it has to be seen, it has to be factored in. But if we make too much of it, the paradox is we forget the power we have. So we have to be mindful of it. It has an incredible impact, negative impact, on too many people around the planet, but, and it's unfairly distributed, but if we make too much a big deal about it, it, it takes our eyes off of the power we have. We actually make it bigger when we overly focus on it. It's fascinating. I mean, it, it reminds me of, um, I think it's the simultaneity principle in quantum physics, the idea yeah. that you find what you look for. And if you look for your internal power, it'll start to show up. But if you're hyper-focused on the big bad guys up there, that's, that's all your reality will be. That, that's a great way to say it, yeah. 
So it, it makes me curious, you know, if someone's watching this thinking, okay, that makes sense. How can I increase my personal power? What would you tell them? Um, well, one of the things I start with in my book is I start with um, your personality because sort of the ground of your personal power is you, your personal, your personality, who you are and all that you bring. And one of the biggest sort of ways we lose power is when we are kind of, we're not, we're against who we are, we're against ourselves. We're not looking at our personality and using what we have. We think we should be different. We think we're introverted. We think we should be extroverted or we're, you know, we think we should be more assertive and we're more, you know, reserved. It, it, it begins with really, I mean, it sounds really simple and very cliche, but I got to stand by it. It really begins with embracing who you are and your particular nature and your temperament. Because if you try to be different from who you are, it makes you very unstable. It makes you very frail. Um, you're also leaving great things on the table that you're not developing. All your strengths and abilities come from that sort of ground of being. And so you have to really work it. You have to be yourself um, and not be against yourself. And that's, that's number one. And that's not easy, by the way, having been being in the psychology field, it's not easy. It's harder than it seems. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I hear you as kind of connecting with yourself and bringing um, unmindfulness to oneself sometimes can actually be destabilizing if you sit with it long enough. Um, and I, 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 uh -huh. yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I, it, what I'm saying reminds me of the problem of executive presence, which is something that I talk a lot, a lot, uh, we talk a lot, we talk about a lot at the P2 Leader Lab with my, with my colleague. Um, executive presence is a good example. People see this sort of image of, oh, that's how a leader should be. That's the way to be powerful. That's how to be influential as a leader. And they chase this image, they chase this way of being and standing and looking and, yeah. and it, it's not, if it's not you, it's really hard to embody. And it also forces you to leave who you are behind and sort of approximate an image. And so it's not as, I haven't seen that done very successfully. It's um, yeah, so really, yeah. It's like you're saying, be true to yourself. And in order to do that, figure out who you are and what your unique talents are and don't try to smush yourself into some other mold, like some image of executive presence. Exactly, exactly. I would add, so I would say number two is, is remember powers with an S. So, How so? Um, well, one of the things that puzzles me, you asked me about the definition of power, which we're deferring, it's like counterintuitively, we haven't gotten there yet, but that, that, <laughs> yeah. that's okay. But one of the things that's really in my studies is why do we call it power with a singular and not powers in the plural? Because really, there are many, many different kinds of powers, right? There's personal powers. We've been talking about positional power. There's expert power. There's um, informal power. You have sort of ranking in your networks and in your communities and your groups. We have, um, oh my gosh, relationship or referent power, the power of our networks. We have informational power access to information and resources. Um, we have so many different types of power. And so the, the, the number two to grow your personal power is to remember all the different powers you have. You know, you have the power, um, you know, I, I think a lot about um, one of the things that in workplaces that's not talked about a lot is um, sort of insider outsider dynamics, which oh, is how we talk huge. about yeah it's huge it's huge yeah. and it's so not talked about no. and it's it goes to inclusion it goes to problems of inclusion yeah it goes to issues of toxic workplaces gossip um mm -hmm. clicks it goes to preferentialism and yeah. bias and it's just this massive issue really the power you have of being having seniority being an insider being popular knowing more people being around longer knowing the ropes these are 
powers people have or don't have. And it's something that people forget to evaluate or they have the power of being good with people, having social yeah. intelligence, yeah. really good interpersonal skills, right? Um, they can get along with people. They know how to work with difficult social situations. Um, they have emotional stability, emotional intelligence. These are all different types of powers, huh. expertise, experience. Um, and so growing your personal power means really taking an inventory. And it's one of the things I do in my training, mm. really inventory all the power you have, um, things you forget, things you neglect, things you fail to consider. And um, really find out where are all these secret powers that you have, where are they located? What are the things that uh, give you rank in, in, in different contexts? It, 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 you know, it seems like such a small and yet such a large distinction of singular versus plural, power versus powers. And it reminds me of what you said earlier about how often when you have a certain kind of power, you're blind to that. And uh, I was in a process work workshop here in Chicago several years ago, and we did an exercise around what powers do you have? And I realized that one of, of, of course, you know, I could say, yes, I'm white and I have enough food on the table, but those are not things I think about every day. But then the more we got into the conversation, I realized I have all these other powers that I actually don't think about because why would I? Um, powers like I can read, like I was raised in a family and a culture where I was, I learned how to read, you know, I didn't just go to college, I went to graduate school and sort of my awareness got, you know, broader and broader about, wow, there's all these kinds of powers, but not only that of how, how, I don't know, maybe blind is too harsh, but I really didn't think a lot about them. And in that workshop, I started to realize it's actually very important for me to think about those. I, I don't know if you've seen anything similar happen in the conversations in the workshops that you run. Well, what you're talking about reminds me of privilege, right? White privilege, um, yeah. social privileges, um, almost by definition, a privilege because it comes easy you never think about it and you don't notice it so whenever you have a power or a strength or a privilege it's you just don't think of, you don't see it as such you don't see anything really um right. you assume it's the norm and um exactly. it's one of the big problems with privilege and i think that really understanding what are the privileges i have and how do those privileges then give me other abilities and other powers in the world? How does it open doors? What does it do for me? I think that's an incredibly important thing to be aware of, not only because of problems of inequity and problems of inclusion. How do, how, how do, how do, what do I assume is, is the same everybody else or how can I use my privilege to benefit others? But I think they're also strengths in general are privileges that we, that the, the less we know about them and the less we acknowledge them, the two problems we don't use them but we also use them poorly interesting um, uh-huh right so how do you help people use them well by noticing by really really noticing them by noticing what does it do for me how do i use it day by day by day not just some like global theoretical concept of yeah. like i have this privilege and you know whatever but like literally Every day I wake up, how does that privilege operate? What am I doing? How am I using it? Um, so for example, one of the things that I neglect a lot, when, you know, I've done a lot of work on what are the different ranks and powers and privileges I have, but one of the things that I classically fail to think about is um, I, was, I was brought up upper middle class. So I had advantages in my class background and um, I, uh, one of the things that does for me, I've had friends point that out to me. One of the things it does to me is it makes me um, impatient and entitled mm. on, on the negative side. So, so just knowing how does it show up negatively is really helpful. Like I feel mm. I have to wait in line. I'm frustrated, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I also have impatience. It's partly temperamental, but partly it's conditioning. So working on that has been really helpful. But, but what it does for me also is it makes me comfortable 
going into certain social settings, um, walking into, um, like, for example, um, uh, contacting like a city official or yeah. walking into the hall or trying to navigate sort of bureaucracy. It's not, it's not scary. To, it's not pleasant, but it's not scary. Um, and that comes directly from how I was brought up and the advantages and the privileges I had growing up, not just middle, upper middle class, but also my father was a newspaper publisher in the town that I grew up in. So I just thought it was natural to walk into any Huh. Department of Government. I just thought everybody did that. Um, huh. But knowing that and knowing that and asking myself, you know, am I using it? How do I use it? How do I use it to benefit myself? How do I use it? To, how do I can share that yeah. and make that available to other people? What can I do to make that easier? Um, where am I assuming that's easy? Where I might need to provide more instructions for other people, to more help for other people. Um, so there's just a lot of ways that we can mine that for the value it has for ourselves and for others. For sure. I love that metaphor of, of mining that for the value. And, you know, you mentioned walking into government offices, and I know you've done a lot of work with organizations like the U.S. Department of the Interior or uh, Greenpeace International, which, which is my daughter actually is a strategist there. It's kind of cool, you know, and Fortune 500 companies. So what are some ways that you bring the topic of power into the organizations that you work with? You know, it's not easy to talk about power anywhere. Um, uh, there's such a negative reaction to the word power and power's been used so badly and poorly and it's and power is almost synonymous with bad power like it, you almost never say the word power and somebody gets excited and happy right it's almost you almost you see the word power you, know, you see the word power and people see abuse and misuse yeah, like, and yeah. fraud and ethical violations and yeah. domination and oppression right um yeah. uh, so um so it's never easy, but what I said earlier is also true, is that people need to feel more empowered, which is paradoxical, right? Here we've got this thing where power is used so poorly, and yet everybody, even in positions of power, feel disempowered, right? People really need help owning their power, getting in contact with their power, feeling influential, empowered, able to make the, do the things they want to be able to do. A lot of people feel frustrated, and so they feel frustrated by not having enough power, and they also feel frustrated by other people's use of power. No matter how high up you go, that yeah. seems to be true across the board. So I tend to bring it up like that. I start with where people don't feel powerful, where people feel frustrated, and they feel blocked, and they feel unable to make the impact they want to make. And that's pretty much across many organizations. Um, sure. Obviously, there's cultural differences. Obviously, there's unique language and there's unique differences, nonprofits, NGOs, government, Fortune 500, culture to culture, country to country. But universally, I found that people relate to the experience of not feeling in touch with their power or not making the impact they want to make. Yeah, unfortunately, it's easy for a lot of people to relate to. Uh, uh, and it also reminds me of an article I read a couple of weeks ago. I think it was from Gartner Research or Harvard Business Review or something like that. And um, there was all this research where they found, probably not surprisingly, that people, when they quit a job, they don't quit the company. They quit their boss. Boss, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Manager. Yeah, their immediate, their immediate supervisor or manager. That's right. That's right. That's been a universal truth for a while. I don't know the latest research, but that's been around for a while. That's really how people feel treated by their immediate supervisor is a huge part of churn, of employee churn, retention problems. For sure. And, and one of the things I get curious about is really two topics, transformation and sustainable transformation. Like um, in my field, as you know, I'm an agile coach as well as an executive right. coach. And so I love the organizational work as well as the one-on-one -on -one executive coaching. And, um, you know, often we'll work on a transformation with an organization, um, often in an agile direction. So that's one thing. But then a whole other thing is 
how do you invite or facilitate transformation in organizations in ways that become sustainable because all the easy familiar ways like do it you know that's not going to be sustainable um so i'm curious how you um tend to engage with organizations around those topics of you know transformation we want to go from a to b and how do we do it in a way where it, it's going to stick when you say that your passion is how do we make it sustainable why isn't it sustainable? Let me just ask you that. What makes it non-sustainable? What makes it hard to sustain? What have you found? That's a great the problem. question. Um, most of the transformations um, I work with are agile transformations. And typically senior leaders and mid-level leaders uh, hear about agile, maybe from another CEO or CIO. And they realize that we need to do agile in some form. And so then those leaders will go back to their companies and say, hey, you 200,000 people, if I think of a meeting I had yesterday, all you 200,000 people, I want you to do agile. Um, and so then there's all these you know, programs that get, get kicked off. But what happens is that the leaders themselves continue to do a traditional command and control um, leadership model by saying, I want you to do agile um, without typically adopting agile themselves. Um, and I don't mean necessarily a particular process, but a mindset because uh, agile is a mindset way of working based on respect, collaboration, experimentation, things like that. And it's not that, um, the leaders, there's no negative intention there. Usually it just never occurred to them <laughs> that, it, that Agile actually might help them in their own leadership work. So then what happens is a cultural mismatch emerges between the teams that start to adopt Agile. And as soon as they do it for a few weeks, they usually love it because it's funner, they're more engaged, it's faster, it's cheaper, it's just creates a kind of environment where you're right. excited to go to work in the morning. Um, but then this, this culture gap starts to grow. And, and that's where I get interested in issues of power because then the teams say, well, we, we're doing Agile, we like Agile, but the leaders now don't understand what we're doing. And they're still asking for the old kinds of metrics that no longer match with what we're doing. We can give them agile metrics, but we can't give them older metrics. Um, and so then the teams end up working overtime to both do agile and provide the leaders the old kinds of um, metrics. And one of the conversations mm -hmm. that I have a lot with people is, um, what's your willingness level to stand up in a meeting and tell the truth and say, I hear you asking for the old, these old kind of metrics, and I know that you as a leader, you need to steer and govern, and you need that information, but there's actually agile information that will help meet your need. What's your willingness level to do that? So anyway, that's one angle I, among several that I might take to the topic of sustainability. That's very interesting. That's very helpful. So, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to have a follow-up question. Yeah. And I know it's my, I know it's your interview of me, but no, I'm sort of afraid it. to try to answer the question. Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously you have so much experience. You're the expert in this and you have such a nuanced or such a detailed understanding precisely why things aren't sometimes sustainable. So my question would be why, why not, or have you, or, or is maybe, maybe it's a more general question. Is the when a leadership team says we want agile or we want these two hundred thousand people to do this, and you have such an understanding of where things can go off the rails and where this mismatch occurs, is it possible then, or is it part of your work to tell the leadership team, well, if you no. don't adopt some of these principles, and the metrics might be different, and this is what's going to happen, and in my experience, you guys need to do this in order for that to flourish. Is that part of setting up the transformation project? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's my responsibility to do that. Right. 
And, and so that usually opens the door to some, some really good conversations. Um, and I can share. And does it make it more sustainable when it, when you do have those good conversations or those organizations, yeah. do they tend to have a more sustainable change process? Oh, yeah. It's like night and day or hopefully like night and day. Um, right. Absolutely. They do. Um, and, you know, like you said, there's different types of leaders in any organization. So some leaders are more interested in it. Some leaders are less interested in it. Um, but I tell people, you know, we're not here to do agile. We're here to make you successful, whether it's executive coaching of your individual leaders or whether it's a transformational effort. And, um, you know, one of my passions is systems coaching, whether it's an individual's internal system or an organizational Right. System. So I'm always curious about like, what's one lever that we could shift in hopes that, you know, there might be a shift in the system and what can we try and then try to observe the results. Right. So, right. I, yeah. You know, yeah. I, you know, I have two hats always. I have, so like all of us are out there hawking our wares, right? So, <laughs> So I have a, I like there's the consultant sales hat and then there's the psychologist educator yeah. coach hat, right? And yeah. so so when I'm being asked to provide something to offer something, whether it's training or consultant power, you know, intelligence training or the instrument, I'm excited and I want that to I wanna I wanna bring that into the organization. So I might undersell the cost. I might undersell not the financial cost, but the cultural cost. Well, no, I might. I might that? Yeah, that's interesting. What do you mean by the cultural cost? That's exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the culture cost. So when the system goes through a change, there's a death and there's a birth. There's a cost. There's a yeah. loss. Oh, and yeah. so I think, I think that when we talk about change, the, the, the excited consultant seller, um, hawker of wares <laughs> emphasizes the gain um, and we minimize the, the loss and the grieving and the cost of change and the pain yeah. and the frustration, the agony of loss and change. And, um, and um, you know, the sunk cost, the commitment to behaviors, even when they don't serve us very well, we're still committed, right? We're humans, we're weird that way. Yeah. And so the, the educator, the coach knows that I should come in there and say, I'm so glad you want to buy my widget <laughs> and I'm going to sell you my widget, but I just want to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have to let go of your old widget and you're going to temporarily hate my new widget. Maybe you're going to miss your old widget. It was so comfortable, even though it didn't keep the rain out, even though your feet got wet, even though it didn't serve you, it was still yours and you loved it. And, um, and so I think, I think accurately, describing the loss, the pain, the difficulties yeah. is part of our responsibility. I know I don't do it enough when I'm wearing the consultant hat and um, I try to do a better job of that. I certainly, with power, it has with any kind of organizational change. I think that, you know, what are we going to lose when we, when we embrace Agile? What are we going to lose? What's going to be really hard for us? Where will we fall down? And have like a really open, honest conversation about not just what do you have to do to adopt it, but what do you have to let go? And what are you going to be frustrated about? And um, I think it's, it's a hard conversation to have, but I think it's also relieving. I think people are kind of relieved to have it named and put on the table. Um, so that might be part of um, the sustainability project is to upfront mm. um, anticipate um, those uh, more difficult experiences and where people might go off the rails. They'll forget that they talked about it, but at least they've been prepared and at least, you know, things have been put in place to help them through that, that process. Well, hearing you describe the importance of that, which I totally agree with, makes me curious to ask you, um, in the conversations that you have with, with leaders in your executive coaching, uh, do you, do you, um, do you help them through maybe a sort of grieving process? How do you say goodbye to the old in a way? Yeah. Do you help them with the grieving process in any way? 
That's a good, I probably, I, not, I, my, my first answer is no, even though I just said that, because I probably, I probably do, but I don't think of it as grieving. Um, okay. How do you think of because, it? Because sometimes like one example that comes to mind is that I work with a lot of, um, I coach a lot of people who are in technical roles, technical fields. And so they have really embrace their technical expertise has really given them the positional power that they have now so yeah. they got to the levels that they are because of their great technical acumen their incredible brilliance and insight but to be a leader of people your technical acumen and your and your your technical brilliance is not what's needed to be a leader of people right you need people skills you need that influencing you need that sort of enterprise thinking that bigger picture and so part of the the loss and the grieving has to do with letting go with the comfort of just knowing the data and the facts and the figures and, you know, being just like a technical person. Um, but they're not letting go of it. And so that's, I think why I, what I, I, it's really not a letting go of it. It's an adding to, you don't let go of that, but you add to it. You know, you might have to let go of a certain behavior. You might have to let go of, you know, when you're presenting to a group, you have to let go of how you'd like to present with all your slides with data behind yeah. you you might have to let go of that um so there is a letting go but i think i frame it as an adding to um and and i think one way to let go of something is to also really honor it as it you know honor it like i really help people appreciate like everything you've done until now like all your ways of leading command and control these are not bad things mm -hmm. they've gotten us to this point they're really good they have a purpose they serve a purpose we don't want to let go of anything that could help us. We just want to have more, a bigger repertoire, you know, more, more um, arrows in our quiver, right? More, more skills at the ready. Um, and um, so I think being able to really honor everything we've done up until now that got us to this place as valuable and as good and not just as bad or wrong, um, I think helps people, uh -huh. helps people pivot. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of, of process work, which, and I, I know you were one of the, the founders or co-founders of the Process Institute. And I think that one of the most valuable things I, I learned in, absolutely. what's that? I said, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, yeah. is how to, how to help people move forward. And sometimes the way to move forward is to look back and to honor the past and not just honor it to help let go of it, but to honor it, to honor it. <laughs> um, and one of my, my corporate clients, it's a large manufacturing, a multinational ma manufacturing company. Um, they just had sort of the official go live date for their new restructured organization where they restructure to be a lot flatter. And they've been planning this for two and a half years. And it's just this huge, huge thing. Um, and so in this leadership program that, um, that I facilitate, what we talked about last week in our weekly meeting uh, was, um, what do you want to honor from the past? Um, and, and that's it. Like, there wasn't like a sneaky agenda. Just what do you want to honor from the past? And it was just this really rich conversation. So, so curious what's happening in your head as you hear me describe that. Have you seen anything similar? That's really lovely. I think that's a great way to, 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 to help groups move forward. Um, and you mentioned process work and, you know, so much of my DNA is sort of, you know, process work. Um, and process learning psychology, and I and I'm, I, I hope I don't mis misattribute this quote. I think it's Barbara Hanna, who was a, a Jungian, early Jungian um, colleague of of Mendel's of, of Marie Louise von Franz, and I think Arnie Mendel uh, would quote this. Um, and we're going to have to check this for the podcast to see if it's right. I think it was Barbara Hanna who used to say that in order to change, you needed two things. You needed to really want to change and you needed to love yourself just as you were. Whoa. Just as you are. So it's that concept of, you know, not moving forward because there's a sense of you've been bad or wrong. Right. Or it's not good with in but just we want to go somewhere else and who we are and where we've been has been great and has has gotten us here um 
people will rebel against the feeling of being wrong or bad. Of it's course. Not it's not a good way to change people, as we know. And we still do it, but anyway, yeah. So we, I yeah, love your story can. of honoring, yeah. And, and that way of changing, it, it just doesn't work. It's it's not sustainable and it, it just doesn't work, <laughs> period. Yeah, we, we get too injured in the process, yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. And, and nobody wins, really. Everybody loses. Um, and you know, process work has been a game changer for me in my career i just like it it's a it's a wow and after my first process work workshop uh i had planned to fly back from from oregon to chicago i think the ne the morning of the next day and i actually um i actually postponed my flight by two days so i could just go out into the woods and sit by the stream and just sit there and kind of let my brain cells reorganize, <laughs> you know? And so, so since we're mentioning the term, can you, can you tell people who might be watching this, what's process work and what's the Process Institute and how did you get involved? Oh, so process-oriented psychology started by Arnold Mendel. He's a Jungian analyst and he was living at the time in Zurich, Switzerland and he was a Jungian and he began to expand the Jungian principles, a Jungian therapy method to really include a range of human, human problems and human issues from relationships, groups, body symptoms, conflict, really being able to, you know, how does this incredible principle work across a range of situations? And so he began to develop it. And um, so it's called process work. It's been informally sort of shortened to process work. Um, uh, so it works with a, a wide spectrum of human experiences. It has a group work application. It has working with uh, body symptoms, chronic pain situations, relationships, families. Um, its beauty is that it's, um, it's a broad spectrum application with a very simple methodology looking at how do people change and grow. It's very, very simple. Um, it's an extremely elegant philosophy of how change happens. Um, and so um, its explanatory reach is amazing. It's just, it's blows me away. Uh, me such a simple, elegant model. Um, I got involved, um, so to say what that model is, just a couple yeah, of quick yeah, things. Yeah. So it really is, it really does, it sits on that Jungian premise of what's called teleological change, a purpose-driven, a purpose -driven that, that humans, that change happens in a purpose-driven way, that what's happening to what appears as a symptom or as a problem is mm -hmm. really solution. Something's really trying to change and grow and it's our resistance to that that makes it look problematic and if we really sort of orient ourselves towards what's trying to happen there's a great deal of so-called symptom relief in that. Um, yeah. a, lot of what, a lot of what's problematic for us are things that we determine are outside of our preferred identity. So um, you know we don't want to identify with a part of ourselves or we're troubled by somebody at work and um, it's just, it's, it's that part of us, which we, which we don't want to see, which we don't want to acknowledge. It's very simple. Um, but being able to align ourselves with that um, really expands our sense of self and as well as uh, relieves the sense of trouble or problems that we have. Um, so um, just like this, law, this conversation we're having about loss and grief, that's an example where everybody's identified with where are we going, where should we be, and what, what we're not identifying with is the loss. What, what are we leaving? We don't want the, the part of us that doesn't want to change and grow. And by opening up that conversation, we actually relieve the field. We relieve the system and allow it to be whole, yeah. right? We allow it to have all parts of itself. You know, we're not afraid to open up the conversation of loss and grief. Um, typically, we might be afraid to look at that because it might threaten the sense that we're not going to, you know, make us feel like, oh, no, we're not going to move forward. Um, but actually, by letting people talk about what are we leaving behind, they're more willing to move forward. So that's an example of opening up our identity more fully. I love that example. Uh, and I'm, I'm not an expert in process work. I would like to be. And when I have time to learn, which is every morning, my first hour of my day, I learn. Um, I, I try to apply that as it actually is my my first place I go and the place I try to live in in my 
my executive coaching work and also my organizational work. And often when we talk about, you know, people in a transition, um, one question I ask, say, in an organizational group, like let's say Waterfall, which is a traditional approach to developing products. So um, Waterfall is the old, Agile is the new. One question that might be a process question that I try to ask is, you know, what does the waterfall approach know that maybe Agile doesn't? And they start to discover that it's, it's not bad and wrong, that there are many things about it that work and there's a certain wisdom in it. And they don't see that wisdom until they get curious about it. And then as that starts, what's that? I said, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when they get curious about it, then like you said, there's kind of a relief in the system and then there's new resources that emerge and some of it might be saying goodbye to something, but mm -hmm. some of it might be migrating. Like, is there something in the old that works so well that right. you migrated into the new? That's right. That's right. Uh, one of the principles is that if you shut the door, if you shut the door on something, it has a tendency to it will it will reemerge. You know the old. You know the you know there's like a classic way. You know you have a breakup with a with a partner, and then you have a new relationship, and the same problem haunts the new relationship. Right. Like you yeah. really sort of like you got yep. together with the same person, even guilty, even though it's even though it's a different <laughs> person. I laughed. That was the danger. Um, anyway. What, what were you laughing at? I can catch <laughs> the relationship, the relationship example. And he said, you know. Oh, feel free to laugh. Yeah, I mean, that's why I got into Jungian psychoanalytic work. I'm on like year six or seven. Yeah. I lost track by now. Because I said, I want to stop dating and marrying my mom and dad. <laughs> you know? it's exactly. Helping anyone. Yeah. So whenever we shut the door on something too hard, we have, we're in danger of recreating the experience. I mean, that, again, that's another cliche, but that's very true. So that goes to this idea of that, opening that, up. I, I, I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt you. That, that feels so important right now there. I just wanted to stop. Like, if we shut the door really hard on something, we run the risk of repeating it and then it runs us. Can, can you say more on that? That feels really important. There's just so many ways to describe it. I mean, shutting the door on something really is to sort of create a blind spot. So that means that we don't see that part of ourselves. We, we don't recognize it when we're getting close to it, when we meet it again. Um, we just, we're sort of, we're not really looking soberly at that part of ourselves or that part of the world or other people. Um, we lose our discernment. We're unable to really evaluate or critically yeah. assess what it is what happens to us um we don't see what could be potentially positive or affirming like the waterfall example um we become so many become unconscious we become unconscious. we remain unconscious and we don't that's know right. we're unconscious in the that's, corporate that's environment right. we work in there's this quadrant they talk about i don't remember all the yeah the known and the unknown yeah conscious incompetence yeah. or Unconscious incompetence, unconscious competence, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and there's the Jahari's Jahari's window. Right, has right, that. right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And and what you're describing actually reminds me of um, a corporate workshop I was in. I don't know, maybe a year ago in a, a Fortune 500, and I wasn't. I was the co-facilitator, but my co-facilitator stood up and said, "Now we're going to do a new exercise, and it's called the asshole exercise." <laughs> And, you know, he told me about it beforehand, but the group was like, what? And so it was actually exactly what you're saying, which is, okay, you guys, you know that, you know, think of the person who annoys you the most, you know, what are the things, mm -hmm. you, you know, describe that person. Okay, well, those are parts of yourself that you're, you know, externalizing onto that, that person and, and that, you know, so all those small ways that we use, whether in your case with maybe individuals and executive coaching, in my case with that, and um, with the groups, I, you know, if I think about 
what might be common between our work is maybe part of it is it has to do with inviting people and groups to become conscious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. well, how well does that describe or not describe your work? Yeah. yeah, helping people become conscious. I was actually thinking of something I read by Arnie Mandel on how he feels process work is, is simply help inviting the world to become more conscious. And I was curious of, about how well or how not well that describes your work. You know, I think everybody in a position of you know, as an educator of some kind, and I use the word educator very broadly, but you know, if you're a consultant, if you're a coach, if you're a therapist, you're a teacher, you're sort of bringing new insight and new awareness to people. A lot of that, if you're in the field where people's development requires more than just technical change, but let's say adaptive change to use the Heifetz-Linsky mm. model, right? I think you're always trafficking in consciousness, raising awareness, raising consciousness, helping people become more aware of themselves, um, their full selves. Um, you know, one of the things I love about coaching is I love that it's bringing these deeper concepts into business and leadership. And I think they're really needed there. And I think they're embraced. I, I think, you know, I think that it's becoming more recognized what a value that is and how people really need that consciousness to do yeah. their work better and to be more effective at what they do. Absolutely. And to be happier and to be happier, not yeah. just effective, but happier being effective and being in that role. It's so true. You know, the role of, of happiness and engagement, we, we have the data now it's directly tied yes. to business success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think helping people, I think consciousness, you know, I mean, obviously consciousness for the sake of consciousness is good, but I think consciousness, it just makes people happier and more whole, more fulfilled. For sure. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Not always an easy journey, but it, it's, it's not the kind of thing you would say no to once you know what's in it for you, you know? Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So this has been such a fascinating conversation that the time flew by. My goal was like half hour and we talked for an hour. I just so love these topics. So if people wanted to learn more about what you do, uh, where would they start? So you mentioned my book. So my book is Power, A User's Guide. And um, I think that's a great place to start. It's a, it's a book on power. It's very general. It's not specific to any one type of leadership role. Um, if you're a teacher, educator, consultant, just a learner, a student of power, I think that's a great place to start. My website, diamondleadership.com, has articles. I'm also on LinkedIn. I write on Medium. Um, um, I'm easily searchable. <laughs> and uh, so I have a private website, juliediamond.net, which has some blog posts back that goes back, that go back several years, um, which are less, so more broad, not so much about power um, mm -hmm. and have sort of more about leadership, learning change. Um, so that, that's a place to start, I think. And, and typically um, what types of people or roles or, or typically who do you see in your workshops? Like if people are watching this thinking, hmm, I might like to sign up for a mm -hmm. workshop with her, what, what would you have to say about that? Well, currently right now, my workshops are focused really specifically on the power intelligence method and the certification. Um, this will be changing over the next year. I'll be offering a little bit more broad open enrollment workshops. I mean, these are open enrollment, but they're really, they have a specific focus on working with power intelligence inside of organizations or doing it in a coaching practice or with leaders. So I am a little bit focused on working with leaders and those who work with and for leaders. So HR partners, OD, talent development, um, professionals, executive coaches, things like that. Um, but, but I do, will be doing more. I do speak at conferences. Um, uh -huh. I'll be, um, you know, so um, usually can find me on um, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, I have a YouTube channel and uh -huh. a website. So you could find out what I'm doing. And I have a newsletter. If you want to know everything, sign up for my newsletter. I have a monthly newsletter and it's, you know, 
I, it sounds terrible, but it's a great newsletter. It's it really, I, I write, yeah I, I write, yeah, I write unique content for it monthly. Um, it has upcoming events, but it also has really, you know, different takes on what's happening. Sometimes it's very topical. Sometimes it's about my research. Sometimes I share other people's research. Um, so signing up for my monthly newsletter and my events newsletter are great ways to stay in touch with me. And you can do that on my website. Fantastic. Well, um, I feel like we barely scratched the surface of things, but it, it's just been such a, a wonderful and enlightening conversation. And I just really want to thank you for sharing your thank knowledge you. and insights. Thank you. Kelly, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the sort of the wide range of things we did. Um, and yeah, we just scratched the surface, but, um, but it, was, it, was, it was really enjoyable. So thanks so much.